we're pleased, I trust, to have Nathan, Nathan Moser with us. Nathan will be preaching this morning. Nathan has been a part of our church, he and his wife, Kareen, for going on a couple of years, and, and uh, he came here uh, from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which I think is the premier seminary uh, in, in the world. And, uh, and so um, uh, he came with a Master's of Divinity, came to work on a graduate degree at the university, and has been doing that. And, and in the period of, of being here, uh, working on the degree, his call to ministry has become uh, solidified. And uh, now he's seeking ordination in our denomination. So he's met with our elders, and our elders have endorsed him for ministry. He's gone before our presbytery, which is just the region of the country that where our um, uh, various uh, EPC churches come together and and uh, and and uh, oversee the life and ministry of the particular churches in this mid America, this mid West area, if you will. And he's come before them, and they've affirmed his call as well. And uh, so. Uh, we're pleased that uh, Nathan can be with us uh, to preach uh, this morning. So let me, uh, let me pray for him and for us as he comes. Father in heaven, we are grateful for Nathan and his life and to Kareen and their family. And we're grateful, Father, for how you've uh, brought them here to us. Uh, and the great joy it is to know them and uh, have their friendship. And so, Father, I pray now for... Nathan, as he comes to preach, that your spirit would be upon him in such a way that he would speak uh, those words that you have worked in him and those words which are necessary, important for us to hear that we may continue to live in Christ. So be with him. Uh, May his uh, thoughts and meditations be that which are pleasing in your sight. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Thanks for showing up on your uh, holiday weekend. It's great. I just want to check. Now, you went to Gordon-Conwell, right, Pastor Bill? That's why it's the premier seminary in the world. Okay, just, you know, checking. Well, it's my great, great pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, many of you I know. Some of you might not have seen my face before. That's the, um, that's the problem, I guess. It's a good problem, being part of a big church. My wife and I um, go to the later service, and it's a miracle that we arrive there on time. So I just don't think we will ever darken the door of the 845 service. So, so some of you know my wife, and um, uh, we come from Seattle originally. I was born and raised there. Then I went to seminary out in uh, the Boston area. I did that for about four or five years. And then I came here to KU, where I've been since, and started as a gradu- graduate student. And now I'm just an employee uh, preparing for ministry. And it's been my great pleasure to do that here at Grace and to have the oversight and the help and the prayers of the leadership here and, and to be part of this congregation and to be friends. It's just been amazing. And so I come to the pulpit this morning... Um, you know, feeling a little bit terrified, but not too bad. And I know I'm among friends, but there's really no easy act to follow in terms of preaching at this church. Um, Bill, Chad, Dave, Rick, you know, they, they give great sermons, and I'm always blessed by them. So, well, uh, here you have me this morning, and I hope it's worth your while. I'm preaching from Revelation chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Revelation chapter 5.
This is a goosebumps passage. One of my favorites in all of scripture. Okay, Revelation chapter 5. Are we ready? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one on heaven, in heaven, or, in, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I got goosebumps. It's a beauty. But there's a lot in there that kind of boggles our mind, and rightly so. But before we dive right into that, I want us to think, I want you to think with me this morning, about this idea of God's will on earth coming as it is in heaven. For the last two weeks, uh, I've heard uh, from the Bill's sermons that, you know, as we pray or maybe as we see miracles, what we're really seeing, what we're really praying for is God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Because, you know, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that this world is out of whack, it's off kilter, something's wrong, something's not quite right. And I think most human beings know this and have some sort of solution. Even the secular humanists are hoping for some kind of step forward or some kind of new step or new government or new movement. 
to be a more just, a better, more loving society, more sustainable, more green. I mean, who knows? There's all kinds of solutions out there, right? Well, we Christians believe that God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven is a reality that started in history. This is not pie in the sky. So what I would add to, to um, this point from Bill's sermons is that we can fix our hope on a specific point in history. You know what that point is? The incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a fairy tale. The New Testament labors to establish that this happened and was witnessed by many witnesses. This happened. So there's this historical moment where the quintessential breaking in of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. There's this moment where it started. The new step forward has been taken entirely by God's grace and mercy. He knows our desperate situation. And the second thing I would add is, it will be completed in history. It will be consummated, if you will. We are longing for that day. We Christians are, are longing for justice. We are longing for goodness. We are longing for that day when the kingdoms of the world will be the kingdom of our God. C.S. Lewis said that this world is enemy-occupied territory. That's what it is. There's no neutral ground. There's something of a mutiny going on here. And what we disagree about as human creatures is the means, is, is the uh, how do we realize this dream of justice, this dream of goodness? How do we do that? And my question this morning is, how do we do that in our individual lives? How do we advance this kingdom in our marriages with our children at our place of work? Do we, do we think about it at all? Can the kingdom be advanced? How can I help the kingdom? You know, and maybe you think that way because you're active at a great, uh, great church like this and you help with the children or you help with uh, this or that Bible study or you're involved in various ways. And I know for me, having gone to Bible college and seminary, I sort of thought to myself, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join up on this team, you know. Not bad. I might be the point guard or the strong forward. You know, hey, I'll, I'll uh, lend, my, uh, lend my efforts to, to advancing this kingdom. And I remember when I was studying this passage in seminary, I realized that that notion of how I advance the kingdom, how this or that church advances the kingdom, is completely wrongheaded. Something very, very critical is missing there. And maybe you don't think about the kingdom so much as you think about goodness. We all want a good life. We all want to make the right decision. I've had to make a lot of hard decisions in the last couple of years. When I came to KU, I came under a full uh, funding package 
And I remember I had this moment when I left seminary thinking, well, why don't I just go into ministry right now? Ultimately, I want to be in ministry. Why don't I just go right now? Isn't that the most, you know, the shortest distance between two points? It's straight line. Why don't I just straight line right in there? And I had this opportunity to go to KU, and I prayed and spoke about it with my wife uh, at length, and we prayed for a long season, and everything seemed favorable. We wanted to make the right decision. That is to say we wanted to make the most painless, easy, glorious, and good decision for my career, for my family's happiness, for my own comfort. And I came and began in the graduate program. Things just sort of fell apart. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. Basically, the money ran out, the time ran out, the energy ran out, had another baby. You know, it's just, it's just you can't do it all. And the Lord just um, broke that dream. And it hurt in some ways. But in another way, something new and beautiful is growing in that place. And I, now I'm ready for the direct path. Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, please help me. So anyway, what I'm saying here is we all have a vision of, of how to realize the best in our lives. And I submit, just like thinking, how are we going to advance the kingdom? I think sometimes if we think, how is my life going to be the most easy? How, is, um, how am I going to have the best, uh, most harmonious family? How am I going to be so secure financially and you know, obtain the uh, vacation home or the uh, fishing boat? That one's mine. Um, you know, how do we get this done? Again, I say it's a bit wrong-headed. Here's why. Let's turn to, uh, back to Revelation, okay? Now, when we come to Revelation, there's some ground rules, right? We've got flying beasts and, and creatures with multiple faces and, and so forth. And there needs to be a, a few points of introduction to Revelation. And if you happen to be part of the women's Bible study, which my wife was, I congratulate you for devouring the entire word of God in eight months. And the guys are right on your heels, I'm sure, right? No. It was very impressive. And I know recently um, Pastor Bill got to speak and introduce uh, the sort of final lesson to the women's Bible study, and it was on Revelation. So this might be familiar to you. Others were in church a few months ago when uh, the good Reverend Chad Donahoe spoke on Revelation chapter 12. Much of what I have to say by way of introduction is similar to what he will say or what he said. So the first thing to remember is this is historical, okay? When we have the first few chapters of Revelation, they were written to churches. And those were real churches. They're real places. You could look on a map, a historical map, or even a a contemporary uh, atlas, and you could see these are real places, Laodicea and Thyatira and Smyrna and so forth. These are real places. This was meant to be read aloud to real churches. And in fact, the order in which they're listed would be the same order that someone on a horse would probably visit these churches. So it's rooted, again, rooted in history. This isn't fairy tales. This is history. Okay, well, why is it so fantastic? I mean, what's with the beasts and the, and the living creatures and the elders and, and um, the heavenly stuff? What's that all about? Well, it's a type of literature. It's called apocalyptic vision literature. And the best way I can describe it is it's kind of like a good fantasy film. It's epic. The genre suits the material. There are some truths out there, like love and grace and goodness and beauty and wrath 
that's best expressed in poetry, in a song. You see, Revelation and the other apocalyptic literature of the Bible, Ezekiel, um, Daniel, what have you, it's trying to communicate truths, important heavenly truths, in a way that's not just business as usual as we communicate about a shopping list or or, um, a newspaper, what's in the newspaper. So it's fantastic. So we need some help with the symbolism and the numbers and so forth. Okay? So there's that. And then uh, it it's thoroughly steeped in an Old Testament mentality. The Jews who read, uh, early Christians and Jews who read this text, knew the Old Testament like we know the Pledge of Allegiance. And the greatest help for interpreting Revelation, perhaps, is a cross-reference Bible. In fact, Revelation chapter 5, 4 and 5, you ought to read Daniel chapter 7. Yeah, there's a Zechariah theme, there's an Exodus theme, there's an Ezekiel theme. It's just complicated and it's woven together, these threads of the Old Testament. Okay, so much for the introduction for, to Revelation. All right, let's take this apart one bit at a time. So, here's John, and he has a vision, right? And Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 are really of the same piece. Chapter 4, I'll basically summarize. God is to be worshipped. This one on the throne is to be worshipped because he's the creator of all things. God is to be worshipped. He's the creator of all things. And here's John, kind of right in the middle of, right in between chapter 4 and chapter 5. John sees this vision. In the right hand of one who was sitting on the throne, there was a scroll written on the back and the front, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? Okay, there's various interpretations, but most, the interpreters from most camps, there's kind of four big camps, they do agree on this one, basically. The scroll represents here the will of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's written on the front, it's written on the back, it's complete, it's all there. And Daniel chapter 7 tells us this is not just This is not only the becoming of the Lord Jesus. This is the complete package, the complete consummation, written on the front, written on the back, sealed with seven seals. Seven is an important number in this type of literature. It means complete. It is sealed up. Nobody can touch it. No one can read it. Nobody can do it. And I saw a strong angel. The Greek here is is preaching, was preaching in a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Nobody can get it done. No one can complete it. We might say, well, here's God, the one sitting on the throne. Why doesn't God just do it? I mean, you're trying to tell me God can't do it? Is God not powerful? Why doesn't God just open it himself, this one sitting on the throne? You see, this story is rooted in another story that happened way back in Genesis. Mankind was given dominion to reign on the earth. And how did that go? In an act of mutiny, the first mutiny, mankind fell under the power of the devil and has been a, re- a, a rebellious being since. 
That's our father, Adam. That's the story of our lives. That's the story of our history. Mankind rebelling against the goodness, the justice, the will of God. And you see, I don't know what it is about God, but he's in to using human beings. For some reason, there's some part of his plan where we're somehow to assist in the dealing with good and evil. Somehow we're part of that plan. And here it says, but nobody can open it. No one is worthy. Why is my, why is my wanting to be the star point guard on the Lord's team? Why is that wrong-headed? One preacher said, ain't nobody clean. Nobody's clean. Nobody can do it. And it makes John weep. I hope, friends, that we are even able to weep because we want the justice of God that badly. Now, I think there are those who are working evil, who are making great prophets, who don't really care so much about justice. I think they agree that the world is wrong. Something is off. But you know what? I've got my yacht. I've got my boat. I've got my house. got my secure job. And actually, I'm doing quite well in this or that enterprise. Thank you very much. But here, John, this one who loves the Lord, this one who loves these churches, here he is weeping. And, not, and it says it twice. He, he began to weep loudly. I shouldn't say twice. It's emphasized. He began to weep loudly. And think about this for a moment with me. John is weeping in the middle of a heavenly worship scene. You read chapter 4, God is to be worshipped. He's the creator of all things. Chapter 5, this is this celebration of the lion and the lamb. John's weeping. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion the tribe of the tribe of Judah has overcome the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder responds. Think about this for a second. The worship of heaven stops and responds to the weeping of a human being. Our prayers are important. Our tears are important. In fact, as the uh, elders worship, they've got this bowl full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Later in Revelation, we read that the prayers of the saints, God, how long do we have to wait for vindication, for justice? And these are saints who have been martyred for Christ. I, I suppose we have no concept of that in this country, in this safe place in which we worship. But nevertheless, our tears are important and they mean something. And heaven responds. It's easy to think of heaven as like a one-way command center. It's all top-down in the flow chart, right? Here's some kind of feedback loop. Our prayers mean something. And what does he say? He says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The word is overcome. And the word overcome in Revelation is extremely important. That would be worth a, worth a word study. I can't do it this morning in the interest of time. But the, Jesus overcomes. And this instruction given to churches is to the one who overcomes, I will give 
a place among heaven. I will give. You will reign at my side. The one who overcomes. Well, we overcome because he overcame. Okay? And see, it's the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. David was a conqueror. David overcame. David was a warrior. He was victorious. And I love this picture of a lion. It comes from uh, Genesis chapter 49. Because lions are awesome, right? They are just awesome. I was on YouTube the other day. I saw this lion, about 300 pounds. Okay, it's this, this family from South Africa were in a game park, and the car was full of kids. And they've got this, you know, kind of grainy, choppy home video, right? Like, oh, look, Dad, look, a lion. And this 300-pound lion, 250-pound lion. Oh, look, another lion. Oh, look, another lion. Family's all excited. They see this lion. Hey, Dad, there's some giraffes over there. Well, look at the giraffe. Wait a minute. The lions are going for the giraffe. On the video, you could look it up. 250, 300-pound lion leaps in the air, probably 12, 15 feet. I mean, how tall is a giraffe's throat? Grabs the giraffe by the throat, takes it down. And they start eating it, devouring it. Lions are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they are so cool. And in, in um, Christianity, we love this picture of Jesus the lion. We love it. It's in all over Christian art. A friend of mine was at a conference, big conference celebrating Jesus, and here's this big poster of a lion, you know, Aslan uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and it has this verse quoted. But does John actually see a lion? How is it that this one overcomes? Does John actually see a lion? Let's read on. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A lamb. And the translation here, standing as though or standing as if slain, is no good. It's really standing as slain. It happened. Somehow in heaven, the slain lamb, Jesus, his actual body somehow bears some kind of resemblance to his brokenness, to the cross. He remembers. He's the one who not only suffers instead of us, he suffered ahead of us. He remembers, he knows, he understands. I'll tell you, if God had just done it himself and never became a man, I might follow him, maybe, but I don't know that I would trust him. We can trust him. Romans calls this one the second Adam. The inheritance, the promise to reign was a promise given to man. And man could not do it. But Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, the second Adam, he is worthy to take, us, take the scroll and to get it done. And he did it in history. And he'll complete it in history. Oh, glory, hallelujah. Glory. This is the God that we follow, a God who wins our hearts.
glory. Hallelujah. So Jesus overcame. He's the second Adam. He's the one who inherits. In fact, another little tidbit about the scroll. It bears striking resemblance to a Roman will. These Roman wills would be uh, sealed up. Seven witnesses had to, had to uh, witness the signing. They could only be opened on the death of the person who wrote the will, and they spoke of an inheritance. It could only be opened by a worthy executor, someone who could legally put the effects of the will into place. This is Jesus, the second Adam, absolutely worthy to deliver our inheritance. Let's see. Let's see how heaven responds. Uh, chapter or verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a golden harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and every language, and every people, and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is his victory. And he's worthy because he suffered in our place. He understands. He knows. But he actually purchased, like a legal description, he purchased, he ransomed a wayward humanity. And if you ever have a problem establishing a high view of Jesus, was Jesus just a mere man or is Jesus the only way? You can go right to Revelation 5. Who else in history did this? This is why Jesus is the only way. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one. This is God's plan in history. Only Jesus is worthy to complete God's work. God's work on the earth as it is in heaven. And it is God's will. What is God's will on earth? To exalt his son, to glorify the son. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. You see here, there's a proper way to respond. And note this. This is pretty cool. In verse 8, you have these four living creatures. In verse 11, you have these 24 elders. And in verse 13, you have all creation. So you have these like concentric circles, right? This inner circle. In the outer circle of the 24, and then all creation throughout the whole earth and on heaven, exalt the Lamb, exalt Him, love Him, praise Him. You know, 20 years ago, there was this great chorus, to Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. I think it's fallen out of use, sadly, but it's one I bang away on my guitar when at home, and it always moves me, because it's, a hundred, it's Scripture, and it's real. We exalt the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Glory, hallelujah. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. So, in conclusion, 
let's ask the question I started with. How does this get played out in our lives then? I've established that I'm not the star point guard on the Lord's ministry team, right? I'm a fan in the stands saying that's Jesus, right? So how does this get played out in our lives? You might say to me, Nathan, well, this is all well and good, right? John had a vision. I don't have a vision. Elders and creatures and all creation. Okay, I worship on Sunday, but how does this get cashed out? What's the cash value in my life, really? How does this get put into effect? Do you ever think about that? I mean, so what are we supposed to do here? Do we just do nothing? How does this relate to my difficult, painful decisions? Strained relationships and hard marriages and difficulties of this or that. We know that our problems are very specific. And this doesn't seem very specific, does it? Good old dead preacher named Charles Spurgeon said this. If you want to be blessed, pray the prayer that God has to bless. Takes courage to pray this one. But I think it can help us. God, bless and glorify your son in my life. Whatever it costs me. Have you ever gone through a hard thing that somehow you still kept praising him? Or somehow you said, I, this is really going to hurt. might cost me my job. might cost me a relationship. I have a family member who's made a stand in a relationship that said, you are over the line. You claim to be a Christian. You are over the line. And I'm sorry. I cannot support you. But I'm going to glorify the lamb. I'm going to glorify the one who sits on the throne. Because he knows, he understands. God will bless his son. It's his will on earth. What's God's will on earth? To glorify the son. So how do we put it into effect in our lives? Lord, help me know in what decision, in what way in this problem can I give glory and glorify the son? Should you share about Jesus if you are in a car ride with someone? Yeah. If someone asks you if you believe in the resurrection, yeah. I think sometimes the problem is not so much ambiguity as it is courage. Sometimes it is ambiguous, granted, but we wait and we pray. We can only do this. We only have the power to do this as we repent, as we yield, as we look to him. Because we're not going to do it perfectly ever. We're not worthy. Nevertheless, we confess and we follow, we believe. Please pray with me. To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. God, I thank you that I'm a part of such a great family in this church. I thank you that it's a safe place to come and to try and to be a sinner and receive forgiveness and be assured of your love for us. I just thank you for all of my dear family members here. God, I know in every heart, every mind, there are issues, there are problems, there are complications. God, I pray you would be real. You would be real in that circumstance. You would speak specifically, how can we glorify the Son in our lives? How can we have courage? How can we have hope? Lead us to repent. Lead us to love you. Lead us to serve you. We thank you for speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you, Nathan. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there'll be elders available to pray down in the front of the church after the service. So please, if you have a particular need, I would encourage you to avail yourself, avail yourself of that. And now please uh, receive God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. glory in my redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and tongue him on that judgment tree i will glory in my redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He brought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another I'm satisfied in Him alone I will glory in my Redeemer His faithfulness, my standing place Though foes are mighty and rush upon me My feet are firm held by His grace my feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagles' wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when He calls me, it will be paradise, His face forever to behold, His face forever to behold, His face forever to behold. You are dismissed.